Now I'd like to invite Evan forward to bring us the word. We'll be in Judges chapter 19 to 21 today. We'll do a little bit of a flyby of that passage, but I do want to read a chunk of it before we begin. So if you turn to Judges 19 verses 22, we'll read all the way to verse 30. It's on page 219 of your pew Bibles, 219, starting verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, Behold, the men of the cities of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. And do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put, on, put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and, to, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who said it, sorry, all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is God's word. So this was the passage that was uh, primarily focused on during VBS. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, that's, that's a joke. <laughs> Uh, I've been reading uh, a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by a couple of professors in college, and they uh, just got to the part where they talk about the history of trigger warnings, and perhaps this would have been a helpful trigger warning ahead of time. They give you this passage that uh, this is a heavy passage, yet it is in the Bible, and so we have to deal with it, and we'll do, a, like I said, a quick flyby of 19 through 21, because the title of my sermon is Just When You Think It Can't Get Any Worse. You've been in Judges for most of the summer, if not all summer so far, and you think every chapter, it can't get any worse. But it does. Bad things happen all around us, and oftentimes they tend to pile on when they do. So we, took, we express this different ways in our culture and so I thought it might be fun to have a little exercise where I say something and you finish the sentence. All right? How we say it? So, when it rains, it pours. All right, good. Or you think about Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Right. 
I actually read an atheist uh, last month who lived by that motto of Murphy's Law, which sounds really depressing to live. That's not the motto that I will live. I'd rather live by the uh, don't worry, do, be happy, or something like that, or akuna <laughs> matata, or something like that. Or maybe you've heard of this. My aunt used to say, and she still sometimes says, bad things happen in what number? Anybody know? Threes. Threes. Right, so you, your dog runs away, your wife leaves you, and your truck breaks down. Great country song, but it's also, it's recipe for a great country song, but it's also this idea that three things that are bad will happen before they turn good again. And the story judges kind of goes like this. It's like Murphy's Law. It's like when it rains, it pours. It's not just think, bad things happen in threes. It's like bad things happen again and again and again. It goes from like good judges to okay judges to really bad judges to no judges and like horrific, horrendous situations. And so you might have left off last week in judges and then thought, well, can't get any worse than that. It gets worse. And even in 19 through 21, it gets worse. Israel's morality reaches its lowest point, and they become radically corrupt. And we may wonder and be left to wonder, where's God in all this? Where's his grace? And what I hope for you today, what I hope that you'll take with you as, as you leave today, is that radical corruption can't stop God's radical grace. That like light coming through cracks in the darkness. We think about like a window with a shade pulled down, but the light is just coming underneath it. God's grace breaks through despite the corruption all around us. So I want to talk about radical corruption, but I also want to talk about radical grace. So let's start at verse 1 of chapter 19. The first verse says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. And this has been a big thing in the book of Judges. It's this, it's this state that Israel is in, what we, we may call like a gray zone. It's this kind of this area where the old era is passing, the new era is coming in, and they don't really know what the new era is going to look like. But right now, there's Moses and Joshua have, are behind us, and the kings are ahead of them, which they're not aware of yet. But we, we are aware because we know the future here of the story. A certain Levite, a Levite's Israelite priest, was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, which is his tribe. Or sorry, he was um, sojourning in there, but he's coming from Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of Israel. And he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, a concubine in the ancient world, you would take you know, your primary wife, you might have other wives, but then there's these like second class wives, which are concubines. This was a common practice. He's not doing anything unusual. And it says here, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. We don't necessarily know what it means by she's unfaithful. Most commentators believe it's not that she, that it involves infidelity, but that she's simply unfaithful for what we see here, leaving her husband and going to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. So she goes back and she lives with her parents. And the Levite, for some reason, takes his sweet old time to go pick up his second-class wife, his concubine, he takes four months to do so. And when he does, which, by the way, would not fly in my house, you know, sometimes, my wife's not here, is this being recorded? Probably is, but... (laughs) 
you know, so, uh, if I know anything about male and female relationships, usually when your wife walks away, you're supposed to follow her. That's what I've learned. And so if you don't know that, write that down, men. Uh, follow your wife if she walks away and, and see what's going on. And he takes four months to do so. And when he does, he's greeted by his father-in-law very kindly in, in a great welcome. Maybe he's excited because he can finally send his daughter back to her, her house and get back the guest bedroom or something like that. But he really invited, that was a joke, but he's really inviting them in for, he invites the Levite in to drink and to eat with and just enjoy each other's presence for three days. And back in the day, hospitality was a huge deal. And it was the assumption that if somebody came to your house or to your tent and they were traveling or to your town, that you would take them in. You would give them lodging until they left, until they went home. And you would do that not just for your friends. You would also do it for strangers, which I don't recommend doing that for strangers nowadays, but that's what they used to do. And after three days, the Levite's father-in-law convinces the Levite to stay longer. So he stays a fourth day, then he stays a fifth day, and then evening comes on the fifth day, and the Levite's like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. Like, I gotta go. I really do need to get home. And he's determined to get back home. And we've, what we find out is, if, we're, if you're an ancient reader, you're thinking at this point, it's evening. This is a foolish decision to leave. It should be till morning. Because in the ancient world, when it got dark, you went to bed. Like, you didn't go out. There's no street lights. You don't have an iPhone with a flashlight on it to get around your house. Like, it's dark. It's dark. Like, that's, that's it. And if you go on the road at that point, you're liable to get mugged or worse. So it's a foolish decision for him to leave, but he decides he's going to leave anyway, and he puts himself and his entire caravan in danger. And so he goes. And as he and his caravan are traveling home, he decides to stay overnight at a nearby town. And there's some irony in this moment. Because what happens is the Levite servant says, hey, let's stop by this town and lodge there. And Levite says, we're not going to stop here because that's a, town, that's a pagan town. We're going to stay with the people of Israel. So they decide to go to an Israelite town, Gibeah, which is part of the tribe of Benjamin. And they end up in the town square and pick up in verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So then the Levite answers him, tells him what's going on. Jump back into verse, in, at verse 20. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So, okay. If you're an ancient Israelite reading this story, there's a ton of red flags here. We might not see that, but there's a, a number of red flags that we should be aware of. If you're an ancient Israelite, you're probably asking at this point, why did no one invite that man into their house? Why is, he in, why is the Levite in the town square why did nobody invite him? And why is it the only one who invites him is another visitor in that town who's not from Gibeah? So it's a, a major cultural failure. But then there's this other red flag that we might miss. Why does the old man tell the Levite 
not to spend the night in the town square. Something's not right. This is starting to, th- and they might say, this is starting to sound like another story. And I'm really hoping it's not going to be this story. But this is, awfully, this is sounding awfully a lot like the story of Sodom. In Genesis 19, two angels disguised as men enter Sodom at evening and they settle in the town square. And Lot, who's not originally from Sodom, invites them in to stay with him. But that's Sodom, right? Surely the story will go differently with God's people. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. And so we see the radical corruption. The part of the passage we read, starting verse 22. And they were making their hearts merry. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So like Sodom, the men of the town come and they want to, and sorry, this is the only really way to, real way to say it, they want to gang rape someone of the same sex. And as we read, as we, as we read the women, just like Sodom, are offered by the host to be gang raped instead of the man. So you think about Lot, he's like, here's my two daughters, take them. The old man's like, here's my daughter and this guy's concubine. Take them. But just like Sodom, the men of Gibeah aren't satisfied with that. But unlike Sodom, no angels are there to strike the men with blindness. So the concubine, unlike Sodom, the concubine is thrown to the mob and is sexually assaulted and abused all night. So, and here's what the author wants us to see. Israel has become so radically corrupt. This is where doing what is right in your own eyes gets you. Right here. You become worse than Sodom. Israel has become Sodom 2.0. And when we talk about radical corruption, theologians have called that at times, total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity explains that because of Adam, who was the head of the human race, when he sinned in Genesis 3, all of us now are born with the stain of original sin. And total depravity doesn't mean that no one has redeeming qualities unless they're a Christian. Like, for instance, as bad as he was, I'm sure Hitler played fetch with his dog. Or like as bad as members of the KKK are, I'm sure many of them love their moms. It's not that there's no redeeming qualities even in the worst people, but it means that sin has corrupted our entire person. And our wills are enslaved to evil impulses and desires. And without God's grace in Jesus' death on our behalf, our wills will remain enslaved. And Gibeah's story could become your story. The men of Gibeah could be any one of us if it were not for God's grace. And so the Levite gets in tight eight hours of sleeping. 
He does not wake up at all. He sleeps very well that night. He wakes up the next day. He grabs his cup of coffee. He goes out to greet the morning. And he finds his concubine laying, abused, and assaulted and abused, laying on the doorstep. And you catch what he says to her? How callous he is? Get up. Let's be going. He doesn't say, hey, hey, babe, my bad, which would be like the worst apology of all time. He doesn't do anything to like reconcile with her. He says, get up, let's get going. But there was no answer. In verse 28, then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. So what does he do? He takes her home, cuts her into pieces, and FedExes her body all over the 12 tribes of Israel. Judges 19.30, pick up there. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt till this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So all of Israel, except the Benjaminites, obviously, come together. In Judges 1, they come together and they gather for holy war against the Canaanites. In Judges 20, they gather together for civil war against the Benjaminites. And they ask the Levite what happened. And just when you think it can't get any worse, listen to how he recalls or retells the story. Verse 4. I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin and I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Glossing over a lot of details right here. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. The Levite manipulates the mob with half-truth. He never mentions that it was his fool's decision that forced them to stay in Gibeah. Or how he tossed her into the street to be assaulted and abused. Or, and get this, when did she die? It doesn't tell us she died by the assault and the abuse. He doesn't say that he may have been the one who ultimately killed her when he chopped her up. He doesn't say any of that. Radical corruption made the Benjaminites and the the Levite callous to immorality. I'm sure the Benjaminites didn't wake up one day and they decide that their towns will be known with Google reviews or on TripAdvisor as the town where you go to to be sexually assaulted. I'm sure they didn't wake up one day and say, that'd be a great marketing scheme. But one unrepented sin leads to another. They do what's right in their own eyes time and time again, and here's where they are, and they become callous to immorality. 
And I'm sure the Levite didn't wake up one day and decide it'd be okay to throw his concubine to the mobs and have her be assaulted and abused all night. And then when she had been, cut her up and send her across Israel. But unrepented sin after unrepented sin, again and again and again and again, pile on top of each other. And Israel constantly does what's right in their own eyes. And here they are, even the priests, is calloused immorality. And when we become calloused immorality, in our culture, in their culture, any culture, it's often the most vulnerable who get the most hurt. And in many societies, that's women and children. Men with callous attitudes towards promiscuity in our culture leaves many women pregnant and alone who then feel like they have no choice but to get an abortion, which then threatens the lives of another vulnerable population, children. See? Callous to immorality, callous to promiscuity, that's where we're at. Callous attitudes toward greed grows the gap between the upper and lower classes, and that leads to higher crime rates, and our neighborhoods become more and more dangerous, and who they become more and more dangerous for? The most vulnerable. Men, women, and children who aren't in power or don't have the means to protect themselves. Or callous attitudes towards selfishness in our culture. Hyper-individualism means we look out for our own interests all the time. And one example of where that leads us is that the elderly are left to figure out their golden years on their own. Kids don't want anything to do with them. That's, that's their problem. Good luck. You don't wake up one day and get this way. If you allow sin to continue without any real repentance or life change, you'll become more calloused to it over and over and over because you've learned to live with it. And when you do, when I do, it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts everyone around us. If you continuously gossip in your church or we continue to gossip in our church, it hurts not only the people we talk about, but destroys trust in the inside the community. And so the most vulnerable people feel like they can't find a safe space here. Because if they're, t- if they're talking about people who've been here a while, what happens when I've been here for a while? They're going to talk about me. Or viewing sexually explicit material online not only builds addictive tendencies in your brain, but it puts unrealistic expectations on your wife. And it keeps the women on the other side of the screen trapped in that lifestyle. See, callous immorality has real-world implications, and without Christ, radical corruption just runs rampant. And the most vulnerable will continue to be the most hurts. And our world will become like Sodom. Or worse, our churches will become like Gibeah. But there's another product of radical corruption. Ungodly righteousness. You can see ungodly righteousness if you pick up verse 12 of chapter 20. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all of the tribe of Benjamin, saying... What evil 
is this that has taken place among you. Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Now pause right there. In Deuteronomy, God says, anyone who, if you sexually assault a woman, that person should be wiped out from Israel. Not the woman, the man. So they're doing what God says. They're saying, we're going to purge these guys from Israel. All right, so far so good. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Not so good. Then the people of Israel came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. Okay, really bad now. Civil war is about to happen. So the, the rest of Israel is not doing so bad. They go, eventually they go to seek God's wisdom before they attack Israel, and that's great. So Israel goes before God just like they did in Judges chapter 1, and God, just like he did in Judges chapter 1, sends Judah first, the tribe of Judah first. Okay, not so bad. But interestingly, what we, might not, what we see from the story is that God actually sends them into battle two times, and they lose both times against the Benjaminites. In verse 26, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. So there's a third battle now. And Israel, in this battle, they set an ambush for Benjamin, and God gives them victory. And you go back later and you can read the whole thing. But the question you might be asking, which is always great when you're asking questions that I already prepared for in my notes, is, why would God let them lose two battles before letting them win? Like, wouldn't it just have been better for them just to win right straight away? I think what the author wants us to realize is that God is using all of Israel to judge all of Israel. He's using the Benjaminites to judge the other 11 tribes and the other 11 tribes to judge the Benjaminites. Everyone's been doing what's right in their own eyes. And God's allowing them to get what they wanted. And it's this, civil war. Israel's fallen into ungodly righteousness. Where godly righteousness is motivated by the right object, God's grace in the work of Jesus, and it's focused on the right outcome to bring, God's, bring God glory, ungodly righteousness is motivated by the wrong object and focused on the wrong outcome. See, the Benjaminites were motivated by, not by God's grace, they're motivated by tribal loyalty. They doubled down. Because they knew what the members of their tribe did. They knew that what God's law said, but they were focused on maintaining their tribe's brand to do anything about it. The rest of Israel is motivated by the impulse of the mob. The impulse of the mob get, to get angry and like ungodly righteousness just floods out of them because they've been given these half-truths. Nobody asks questions like, hey, Mr. Levite, where were you? It was probably Reverend Levite. Reverend Levite, where were you? 
What, didn't, you didn't have any part to play in this? You just let them take your concubine? They're motivated by the impulse of the mob and they're focused on revenge. Because when you look at verse 37, then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck what? All the city with the edge of the sword. In other words, Israel killed more Benjaminites than God's law required them to. Instead of putting to death just the guilty parties, they put to death the guilty and the innocent. All the non-fighting men, women, and children. And only 600 Benjaminite warriors, it tells us, escaped their vengeance. What started okay turned quickly into ungodly righteousness. And just when you think it can't get any worse, turn to chapter 21, and we find out in verse 1 that Israel made a wife oath before the war. Verse 1, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So God designed Israel to be 12 tribes. And they just killed all of the Benjaminite women. So there's no Benjaminite women to marry Benjaminite men. So naturally, and I can't explain it to you, you can ask your parents how that happens, but there'll be no Benjaminite children, so therefore, there'll be 11 tribes. And that's going to be a problem. Because God designed Israel to be 12 tribes. And so they go, well, that's a problem. And instead of going to God for the solution, what they do, they try to fix it themselves. That's not a word for us. I don't know what is, but that's another sermon for another day. And so they recall, wait, didn't we make another oath that could bail us out? We did. We made a battle oath. Fantastic. We promised each other that whoever doesn't fight the Benjaminites, we would kill all them. So they find the one town that didn't join the battle and they go kill everybody in that town and take the virgin women from that town for the Benjaminites. But guess what? That leaves them 200 short. So just when you think it can't get any worse, instead of going to God for a solution, the mom tells the Benjaminites to go kidnap the daughters of Shiloh. Hey, they're going to go do this dance. They're going to worship the Lord through dancing. We're Presbyterians, not Baptists here, so you know that we can worship the Lord through dancing. There you go. (laughs) All right, now you're talking back to me. Great. Right? They're going to dance. Why don't we traffic those women to Benjamin? And they say, verse 22 of chapter 21, and when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, obviously they're going to, you just stole our girls, we'll say to them, and this is really funny, and I'll explain what this means in a second, grant them graciously to us because we did not take them for each man of of them, his wife, in battle, neither did you give them to, to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and they took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, 
and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. What they say is, when the men of Shiloh complain, which, understandably, we all would too, we'll say, yeah, we know we stole them, but we did it for you. If you gave them the girls, we would have to kill you because of the oath we made, the wife oath we made. So we would have to wipe you out if you just voluntarily gave them to us. You're welcome. That's legitimately what's happening. And then for some reason, they all just go home. Like, what just happened here? Like, this is okay? Do you see the ungodly righteousness? Do you see it's not motivated by God's grace? It's not focused on bringing God glory. It's motivated by foolish promises they couldn't keep. And it's focused on saving faith. So they just double down on the oaths. Ungodly righteousness, which we sometimes call legalism, is as much a product of radical corruption as callous immorality. Ungodly righteousness is like putting lipstick on a pig. Or what Jesus says is like putting a fresh coat of paint on a tomb. The pig's still a pig. doesn't matter how much you dress it up. The tomb is still full of dead bodies. doesn't matter how much great paint you have on it. A tomb's still a tomb. Ungodly righteousness can be very deceptive, though. Because on the surface, it looks righteous. It looks godly. It looks like I'm following God here. But under the surface, it's just radical corruption at work. Still total depravity at work. Like, ungodly righteousness will make you overly loyal to your tribe. It'll make you overly loyal to your religious tribe, your ethnic tribe, your political tribe, whatever it is, even when they're wrong. Just be overly loyal to them. You can't point out when a church or a pastor that you knew just ignored abuse in his church because you've got to protect the brand. You've got to protect the brand of the church. You've got to protect the brand of the pastor. You can't say anything about it. Or ungodly righteousness will make you join in with the mob even if the mob was manipulated by half-truths. So that even if all the evidence points to the contrary. You end up doubling down on your opinion, even if you're wrong. Well, I'm standing up for the truth. Yeah, but it's half-truth. Which is, frankly, my mom told me, that's a lie. Ungodly righteousness will make you take promises you can't keep. So instead of going to God to help you fight sin and find a solution to fight sin, you promise yourself by your strength that you'll, you won't commit that sin again. And what do you do? You fail time and time again by your own strength. No matter how much you dress it up, ungodly righteousness is ungodly. It's still a product of radical corruption, just like callous immorality. And if nothing's done about our radical corruption, it's just going to be the same old thing time and time again. And we'll say, keep saying, just when I thought it wouldn't, couldn't get any worse, it has. But God's grace is just as radical, if not more so. Because it's still at work in this story. First of all, it's at work because like, Israel still exists, which is like a miracle. They still exist in Judges 21. 
But look at verse 27 of chapter 20. There's this parenthetical statement. It just feels weird. It's placed there. But it's God's grace just shining through the cracks. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. What it's saying is God's presence was still there. In the sign of his presence, which is the ark of the covenant, and God's priest, Phinehas, a godly priest, the grandson of Aaron, Moses, who is Moses' brother. He's there. So what's it tell us? Well, real quick, it tells us that Judges, at least this part of Judges, was set up theologically, not chronologically this way. The Judges 19 to 21 took place at the same time as Judges 1 through 2. That this wasn't a slow, steady decline to radical corruption. It was rapid. Judges 20, verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1 tells us, and chapter 2 tells us, that two generations after Aaron, no one knew the Lord. Two generations after Aaron would be Aaron's grandson. Israel turned into Sodom 2.0 in two generations. Quick. But also, as radically corrupt as Israel was, God's grace was equally radical, if not more so. It's just subtle. It's so subtle we might miss it that despite how radically corrupt Israel had become, God was still with them with the sign of his presence in the ark. And he still desired to forgive them by having a godly priest there who could offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. But if you know the future of the story, as we all do, we all live in the future of this story. We, we read, maybe read the Old Testament and we've turned to the New Testament. We, we can tell that Israel just gets worse and worse and worse. And as Tim mentioned in the book of Amos, it's, it's still bad and it's getting worse. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. So what God has to do, God has to step in. And God gives Israel a greater sign of his presence. And he gives them a great high priest to atone for their sins in Jesus. That Jesus is God himself comes to be with them. And he dies on the cross and he rises again. And he frees all those who put their faith and trust in him from radical corruption of sin. And in God, in his radical grace, he forgives us because of what Jesus has done for us. And then what does he do? Not only does he give us his presence with the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit act, the Holy Spirit acts as a sign for us that he'll always be with us. So when you look around the world and you see all the radical corruption and you see people who are callous towards immorality or you see ungodly righteousness and you think things can't get any worse than this, remember that God's grace breaks through. And it might be subtle at times. You have to look for it. You need the eyes to see it. But that even for you, 
even for me, no matter how callous we become towards immorality, our own immorality, or how ungodly we become in our own righteousness, God in Jesus proves that He wants to be with you. No matter how callous you are towards sin, no matter how legalistic you are, He still wants to be with you and He wants to forgive you in Jesus and He wants to free you from the bondage that you're in to radical corruption and He wants you to empower you through the Holy Spirit to take steps to live differently. So this week, I would challenge you to ask yourself this question. Journal it, pray over it, meditate on it. But ask these questions. Where is God's radical grace breaking through the radical corruption I see around me? Where is it? Am I just missing it? Is it subtle? For some of you, it's a, the light just blasting through. For some of us, it's just sneaking through. We have, need the eyes to see it. But also ask yourself, what's one sin in your life that you become callous to that's actually hurting other people around you? Is it gossip? Is it your anger? Is it the stuff you're looking at online? Is it greed? And then ask, is my righteousness motivated by God's grace in Jesus and focused on His glory? Or is it something else? Am I focused on tribal loyalties? Or saving face? Or protecting my brand? What is it? But however we answer those questions, I think the call here from judges is to repent. Repent. You, me, anybody who might be listening or might listen later, ask God for forgiveness for your sins and your shortcomings and embrace his radical grace for you and be free to take steps empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your radical grace that you give us in Jesus. And as we come to the table today, we're reminded of your greatest act of radical grace in coming in your Son, your Son coming and taking on flesh and dying for us on a cross. Where we, in our corruption, should have been on that cross yet he died for us. And every drop of blood mattered. Every drop. And may we embrace that radical grace. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.